Did you know that the British Army was the single biggest purchaser of enslaved people by the end of the 18th century? They purchased 13,000 men between 1795 and 1808, taken directly off slave ships from the coast of Africa. It cost them a million pounds in money at the time, which is the equivalent of 70 million pounds today. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 88 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and I'll be your host today. Today's episode is going to be about the West Indian Regiment. We'll be taking it back to 1795 and thinking about its formation, the opposition and pushback from Caribbean legislators who opposed the use of enslaved people to form a West Indian Regiment, the uniform and how it shaped the perception of the regiment once it was created and the pay and material conditions for those who became a part of the West Indian regiments over the 18th and 19th century. The majority of the research for this episode um, has been kind of taken from work done by Professor Tim Lockley, Professor David Lambert, Dr Elizabeth Cooper and Dr Rosalind Narian, and um, also from the British Library and some of the work they've compiled as well as educational resources on the topic of the West Indian regiments. So we're thinking about the formation of the West Indian Regiment in 1795 and Britain's use of enslaved soldiers in the American Revolutionary War and in the Haitian Revolution and the conflict between the French um, in overthrowing them to take the colony um, that was Saint-Domingue in what we now know as Haiti. Um, That was one of the reasons for the inspiration of the West Indian Regiment and the kind of use of enslaved uh, African men uh, as soldiers. Another reason was the British government um, and the thought that by using enslaved people who were African, it would prevent the outbreak of um, slave rebellions and solve the issue of some of the high mortality rates amongst white soldiers who were dying in large numbers due to tropical diseases that um, a lot of African men and women were um, either kind of accustomed to and so that it wouldn't kill them or, you know, they they reacted differently and had better survival rates being around those illnesses, whereas they were killing white European soldiers um, very, very quickly and very, very easily. Um, in terms of, you know, it stopping the outbreak of slave rebellions, well, that was kind of a double-edged sword, essentially, because the British government thought that it would stop um, slave rebellions because, um, you know, enslaved people would be in these armed forces and could be used to quash any rebellions or hear about them and kind of stop them before they happened. But on the flip side of that, when we think about some of the pushbacks towards um, the regiment being formed using enslaved people, um, the pushback was the fact that, you know, we're arming enslaved or formerly enslaved as they would then become soldiers formerly enslaved uh, African men with weapons um, and they could then support insurrections. So there was a kind of double-edged sword to that argument in regards to pros of having a West Indian regiment and the cons, essentially. On balance, it was fair to say that the West Indian regiments 
were used to quell rebellions, most notably the 1816 uh, rebellion in Barbados and the 1865 rebellion of Morant Bay in Jamaica. Both of those um, involved the West Indian Regiment that was in its majority at that point made up of enslaved, formerly enslaved uh, African men who were then used to essentially quell rebellions of enslaved African men and women. Um, And so very interesting there that um, we kind of see once again, as episode 85 showed us, this differentiation, even though uh, race was a kind of a similarity with all these different people, they were all all black, essentially all African um, or or Caribbean descendants of the African diaspora, um, depending on how uh, they are viewed and maybe how many generations they would have been in the Caribbean, in the colonies. They were still separated by their class, whether you were enslaved, whether you were formerly enslaved and now a soldier on a wage. um, The differentiation led to very different uh, potentially outlooks on on enslavement, on the slave trade um, and on plantation slavery, but also the outcomes in terms of what you ended up doing in regards to enslavement um, and Uh, how you were used uh, as a tool whether to further slavery working the land or to quell rebellions um, that you know saw those enslaved people rising up uh, to stand up against uh, the oppression that they were was being meted out to them and now for the opposition and pushback now as I said the colonial legislators um, they were kind of the most vocal in terms of their opposition to the formation of a West Indian regiment. Um, and they wrote to God the government in London in opposition. Their fears were not only about the fact that if so many enslaved people were taken up for this regiment, then who would be the enslaved people working on their land, but also uh, for the safety of themselves and their families uh, if African people were armed. Um, this idea that, that black people were racially inferior, was pushing through, um, and we're going to talk about that in the next section, but essentially those racial stereotypes were really holding firm here, Um, and so the planters and the kind of plantation owners were very much not willing to A, support this, and B, provide their enslaved people to the regiment. Now, the British army were willing to pay these uh, planters for their enslaved people to become part of the regiment. However, they would not Uh, sell them to the army uh, in the sense of they wanted them for their own work and for their own land and we get to 1807 and the slave trade is abolished and so it becomes a little bit more difficult um, at that point for planters um, the British army themselves and you know any slave owners to purchase slaves of course it continues illegally um, but it is a lot more difficult to do so and, and you're nearing that in 1795 when the regiment is is announced and to be to be beginning um there was an, also a fear of the kind of symbolic message that um might be sent to other enslaved people if these uh black people african people were to be armed um, and soldiers in uniform you know to be uh, an armed person in uniform in the caribbean or anywhere really uh, it it shows status Um, A large amount of status, even as an ordinary soldier, you know, taking out officers or sergeants or corporals, just being an ordinary soldier in uniform, it has such status to it. uh, And I think it was a case that, you know, these planters did not want to see black people having any kind of status on these islands because they ruled by oppression, violence and fear, not by numbers. 
um, Caribbean societies during the period of, of slavery um, were very much in the vast majority black. They were the descendants of enslaved African people or newly arrived enslaved African people. Um, and so, you know, the idea that some of these people would then be armed and in military uniform was just too much for them. Um, and so this is why the army was then forced to buy thousands of men from slave ships, um, 13,000, costing them a million pounds in money at the time, 70 million pounds today, um, because they had to fill the um, regiment, they had to fill the regiments up with soldiers. Um, and as we said, it wasn't working out for them to have white soldiers who were being killed off in quite large numbers due to disease and the climate. And they didn't really agree too well with the climate as well, um, which is why they would suggest that African people would have been a better fit. Our next section looks specifically at perception, the perception um, of the soldiers of this regiment. And I thought we'd start with the kind of perception today. Now, most people do not know there is definitely a lack of public awareness that there were any Africans in the British Army pre-1914. There's a lack of public awareness that there was any Africans um, or black people more broadly in the army post-World War One or World War Two. That history has been hidden somewhat too. But to think that there were African people armed in uniform as soldiers um, in the army in the 18th um, and early 19th century is a lot for some people. It's very much unknown. Um, it might be you listening now. You might be thinking, I didn't know this. Well, here we go. Um, and so that's kind of the importance of this episode and also why a lot of this research has been funded um, and why it's kind of now a little bit more readily accessible because of this kind of dearth in public awareness. Now, when we think about this perception today, we've got to think, well, why is, is this such the case? Now, when we think about, uh, let's say, World War II, we were a little bit more aware that black people were part of, of British armies and the Air Force and the Navy um, because of, you know, the Windrush generation and the narrative of ex-servicemen and women coming over. Um, that's all become public history a little bit more. We can see videos of that. We can see pictures of that. We even have people alive to tell that tale themselves that were, you know, servicemen and, and women at the time who are still with us today because it's a more recent history. When we go back to 1795... There aren't, there is literally nobody alive that was alive in 1795, obviously. But also, there weren't, you know, again, obviously videos. Uh, there were paintings done of the time. But in very few pictures, and by very few, I literally, it's so rare that any of those African soldiers were ever named in any of the pictures. Most of the time, the captions will say, the day, which, which specific regiment within the West Indian Regiment um, is being drawn, and it will it will name often the corporal um, or the sergeant or the person in charge. That was, of course, typically a white person, especially um, in its inception. Um, they aren't named. They are just people in paintings. Um, there are no first hand narratives or accounts from them because they were, you know, just African people. Why would we want to hear about them? Um, and that has kind of added to issues in these histories um, and the way that public perception has been shaped. Another very clever tool used, I think, um, to kind of oppress this 
uh, what should we say, oppress the way that this could ever be thought about in the future um, and oppress the significance of this, the significance of, of black people um, within this British army um, in, you know, the 18th century, um, is the fact that they were always based in the Caribbean or West Africa. Few people in Britain actually ever saw them. So where we might rely on, you know, the people in Britain's um, diary entries, accounts, letters, uh, newspaper reports. We don't even have that because they were very much kept, and I would say hidden, in the Caribbean and West Africa. Um, because, again, white people in Britain um, at the time would have been very uncomfortable seeing armed black men in uniform holding status. Um, very few occasions occurred where this was um, different. 1897 was one of them during Queen Victoria's 60th Jubilee, her Diamond Jubilee parade in London, where the West Indian Regiment marched along with other regiments um, and um, armies in the empire. So from the different kind of colonial colonies um, that existed at the time in 1897. Um, they also fought against the Ashanti um, in 1873 to 74 and again in 1895 to 96 and the uh, Ashanti are people in Ghana and it made it into British newspapers, uh, one of the first kind of references to them. But again, um, you know, would people in Britain reading that newspaper associate them with African men um, who were fighting uh, in as part of the British army? I doubt it. Now, you might be thinking, well, what was the reason for this? You know, why was there a need to hide these African soldiers? Um, and racial stereotypes is pretty much your answer. Um, at that time, uh, well, at that time, uh, in some places today still too, um, racial stereotypes suggested that um, African people were, uh, and I quote from many historical sources, were inferior, savage or childlike um, and they were kind of the main body of racial myths used to justify slavery. Um, there was also um, another kind of perception that, you know, African people needed to be civilised. And so in order to civilise them, um, you know, the Europeans were going to swoop in um, and colonise them and spread Christianity and also enslave them um, in order to keep them in line and in check. Um, and in order to kind of maintain these systems and societies of enslavement, this idea of a West Indian regiment just didn't make sense to, to planters and people that held this ideology. Um, systems of violence and torture in slavery were used to keep them down um, and arming them would have been so concerning for these planter classes of people. Now, interestingly enough, there is further support of these racial stereotypes when it comes to the treatment of African people within the West Indian Regiment. They were also white soldiers as well. As I said, um, in the majority, they would have been in positions of power as sergeants and corporals. They were also officers. Um, and so, thinking about then the treatment of said soldiers, there was um, a stereotype that was that black skin is thicker than white skin, which is also very um, common in, like, you know, conversations about medical racism, that black people have a higher tolerance for pain. It's all nonsense. 
of course it is but that was in medical literature at the time and unfortunately I've seen a textbook going around on social media that potentially says similar things and that textbook is from 2022 so really and truly the fact that these uh, stereotypes are persistent today is very concerning and very scary um, but medical racism is, in, is a topic and an issue for another day um, so back to the West Indian Regiment as I said black skin um, being allegedly thicker than white skin it meant that punishment at the time uh, within the ranks um, of the regiment were often more severe. And in surgeons' reports, it's been suggested that I believe uh, when a soldier had done something bad, whether that had been missing their equipment, breaking a curfew, um, speaking out of turn or just not following orders, um, something not level of a mutiny um, per se, which could lead to execution or imprisonment, but something kind of a bit lower down, they were punished with lashings. Um, the standard was about 300 lashings, but it could go to as high as 900. And it would be a surgeon that would call out and say, right, this one's had enough now, based on the kind of symptoms and the way that the person in question looked as the punishment was being meted out to them and it was the case that actually black soldiers um, ended up getting more lashings on average than the white soldiers did because after a white soldier had say had three or four hundred the surgeon would say stop right he's had enough whereas for black people it would get to a lot higher in number before a surgeon would say right stop he's had enough um, and I think that obviously very clearly links back to the idea of black people are allegedly able to handle more pain, which obviously wasn't the case, you know. Um, and essentially that led to um, deferential treatment within the regiment. Um, but yeah, these stereotypes are very persistent at the time, as we know, still persistent in some cases today. But they really did not only impact the fact that people didn't want this regiment to exist because of what that would say with seeing black people in uniform armed this arm I'm saying armed a lot they're very scared of this you know um I think it was a case in Haiti where French planters actually organized uh, African men um against the British so they were supposed to fight in the French army per se um or the kind of equivalent against the British as the British tried to come and colonize Haiti over the French but it was those same people um, that ended up turning against the French um, and beginning the slave revolt in the colony that ended up overthrowing slavery completely in Haiti. Um, and so, you know, these things kind of combined, added to the fears um, of, of the kind of planter classes in the Caribbean at the time. Another interesting part about the West Indian Regiment was the uniforms, actually. Um, and I think it's quite interesting because, again, it shows the disparity between uh, white soldiers and corporals and officers within the regiment and the black ones. Now, the uniform was very striking. If you've seen pictures, um, you'll know that it's got quite an, and I quote, oriental style. Now, at the end of the 18th century, um, you know, their uniforms were quite similar to the uniform in Britain, a very basic uniform uh, given to the ordinary soldiers. But by 1858, um, the imagery is kind of what you will see if you think about the West Indian Regiment now um, with this kind of oriental style uniform. White turbans, a red fez, a red waistcoat with yellow braiding, dark blue baggy pantaloons. This kind of different uniform, shall we say, to what the officers um, and some of the corporals and sergeants were wearing. Um 
This oriental style of uniform was actually inspired by the French soldiers known as the Zouaves, who originally um, came from North Africa. Queen Victoria um, apparently really liked it and decided that some of her own um, military people and personnel should be dressed in that way and it was decided that the West Indian Regiment would be granted that fantastic uniform. Um, and so it was them, the newly formed regiment, who in its majority were made up of formerly enslaved African men, um, who would be in that uniform. However, the division comes when officers wore the old British style, officers being white, whereas the black people, um, you know, the Af from African Formerly enslaved Africans, uh, maybe the children and descendants of, as we move into the 19th century, would have been wearing the new um, oriental style uniforms. Um, and it just created this line. It just creates two different classes within the same regiment where you've got black people in this oriental style uniform. And the way they're drawn in some portraits is quite caricature-like. It's very cartoonish in some ways. And that also plays on racial stereotypes where, with exaggerated features that was common in the drawings of black people at the time. But that combined with this quote-unquote oriental-style uniform with a white turban and a red fez just kind of adds to it. Whereas you have the white officers in the old British style, very simple, um, what kind of the British public are used to in terms of officers and and army wear and so again another division and these divisions kind of just keep coming when we think about the West Indian regiment even though it's made up from at that point um, so many uh, African men and for our fourth and final section uh, thinking about the material conditions uh, and the pay of some of the soldiers within the West Indian regiment now um, their lives were kind of dominated in the most part by routine. It was very structured, very organised and very strict, as you would imagine any armed force to be. Um, there were punishments, as we've mentioned, and they took the form of lashings normally or death when it came to something more serious, such as mutiny, which we're going to think about next episode. Exciting. Um, and so for the most part, the soldiers lived quite strict lives. Their lives were probably better um, kind of materially than those that were enslaved and working on plantations, even though they were taken as enslaved people, they were actually paid uh, for their work within the army. Did they ever have a choice about being in the West Indian Regiment? Um, I doubt it for those that were taken off slave ships. They were bought, they were purchased um, and they were told this was their job. Um, they might have felt like they had been dealt um, a better card. They've picked a longer straw than those that were taken for plantation work. Um, however, you know, actually laying down your life and having to fight potentially against people that look just like you that are trying to make their lives better by overdoing planters and uh, slave masters, you know, that was a job some of them ended up having to do. And some of them were stationed overseas, as I mentioned, fighting against different uh, uprisings against the colonial governments and also against different uh, European colonial powers um, all over the world. And um, we're going to get into some of the kind of 
the latter history um, of this regiment in the next episode and think about the mutiny as well and some of the work they did during World War One, um, which was kind of the main big conflict um, that they, they were a part of. Now, in terms of the pay, um, ordinary soldiers received about six pence per day, um, whereas an ordinary soldiers, I just mean kind of like the standard soldier who tended to be um, African, white soldiers, they were paid 12 pence a day, so double. Um, very interesting, of course, another division uh, in this regiment. And obviously corporals and sergeants were paid even more than that. They're in positions of leadership and authority. However, you might be thinking, well, you know, if a black soldier pulled his socks up, pulled himself up by the bootstraps and became a corporal or a sergeant, he could raise his pay too. No, definitely not. Um, no black soldiers could rise above the rank of a sergeant, um, which meant that, you know, there was a ceiling for them, uh, a concrete ceiling, if you will, that they could not rise above. Um, also, uh, in terms of, you know, them having that pay, which obviously was different to those that were enslaved working on plantations, um, they were not paid at all. Um, the soldiers had to buy some of the equipment for themselves that they would have needed um, in the regiment, not so much of it, but, you know, they wouldn't have been able to keep all of the money for themselves. Some of them would have been able to have families um, that lived near or on the camps with them. Some of them had wives and children. Um, and so the lifestyle was favourable to those that were enslaved, um, you know, in in plantations nearby. Um, and so it kind of creates, I guess, another class of um, black people within the colonial Caribbean and during this time um, because you have those that are are forced into into slavery and are working the land um, and working in houses and um, you know doing that kind of work and then you have those that are part of the army Um, and I don't think the numbers on each kind of individual island would have been that large However, they were still a force and they were still part of that society. Um, And, you know, the symbolic nature of them in uniform and armed was something um, that was quite striking, I think, at the time, especially uh, when we think about the racial stereotypes that were being held up um, by many people in positions of power. And that is all we're going to be covering about the West Indian Regiment in today's episode. Next week's episode will look at some of the uh, work that they did, some of the places they were stationed in um, and during World War One, uh, what they uh, kind of were forced to do and the conditions they were working in that led to a mutiny in 1918. Um, and the disbandment of the regiment in 1927. So we're going to be bringing it up to the early 20th century and thinking about the rest of the story that comes along with the West Indian Regiment. So please join us next week to hear part two of the West Indian Regiment episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If you have, please tell a friend to tell a friend and share this episode with your network. We are on social media platforms, Twitter at the History HL, on Instagram at the History Hotline, on LinkedIn at the History Hotline, um, and you can listen to this podcast on any good podcast platform. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Goodbye.